0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. <music> History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Cindy Hohamovich, the Beef and Izzy Spalding Professor of Southern History at the University of Georgia. She is the author of the award-winning book, No Man's Land, Jamaican Guest Workers in America and the Global History of Deportable Labor, published by Princeton University Press. We're talking to her today about her current research project. Cindy Hohamovich, welcome to Working History. Thanks, Beth. Your new research project connects the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, the development of subsequent systems of indentured labor, and modern-day guest worker programs and policies. Um, you focus largely on Great Britain and the labor systems that replace slavery in the British colonies after abolition. So I'm hoping that you could start us out by briefly talking about briefly talking about the system of indentured servitude that came to replace slavery.
1: Yeah. So American historians are accustomed to talking about indentured servitude in the American colonies. So Mm -hmm. the system that helped to bring the majority of Europeans across the Atlantic to uh, what become the 13 mainland colonies in the 17th and 18th century. And Mm -hmm. So it's a very similar system. So that system involved, uh, uh, you know, people who couldn't afford to get across the Atlantic. And so in most cases, they're volunteer. There's stories of kidnapping. But in most cases, these are volunteers and they essentially uh, somebody else paid their way. And then they either owed that person a set number of years of service or they were sort of sold on the docks. And depending on how skilled they were. They might get a short-term indenture or a long-term indenture mm-hmm. uh, to to the person who essentially paid their way. Uh, that system largely dies out in the aftermath of the American Revolution when it becomes sort of politically untenable to hold white people in bondage. So there's a whole range of kinds of bondage, apprenticeship programs, and and so forth, and indentured servant. And of course, the the transportation of British convicts to the colonies, all those things go away. And there's a brief moment where it looked like all kinds of bondage might die out, but of course that didn't happen and slavery got its second wind in the United States and sort of spread west across the continent. But in the British world, the reverse was true. So slavery really does end in 1838 throughout the British Empire and uh, with the exception of India, but that's another story. And and so the British planters in these uh, mostly sugar colonies for the most part <clears throat> begin, <coughs> excuse me, begin scrambling to find an alternative source of labor. Uh-huh. And so they hit upon indentured labor as an ostensibly free system of labor because people are consenting to their indenture. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they begin to import people from different places around the world on these fixed term indenture bonds that allow them to mobilize labor, but then immobilize it on their plantations.
0: Okay, right. So how then did the state apparatus develop to regulate this new indentured service to the colonies?
1: Well, one of the things that's striking about this 19th century system of indentured labor that spreads across the British Empire and beyond is that while in the earlier period indentured workers tended to be white Europeans, in the 19th century, uh, indentured workers are almost exclusively people of color. Mm -hmm. And the British are very sensitive to allegations that this was a new system of slavery. And in fact, in the early year, the early years of indentured labor in the British colonies, there are so many reports of incredibly abusive treatment, of, of flogging, of death rates on the coolie ships. These the indentured workers were known as coolies. Uh, the death rates that ex- exceeded um, the death rates on slave ships. That immediately abolitionists started to call this new uh, indentured migration a new system of slavery. And um, so the British were very nervous about this. They're trying to sell the idea to other empires that you can, you can have plantations without slavery. Um, clearly their planters are now at addition, a disadvantage, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to, to grow sugar without slavery when everybody else still has slavery. There's still slavery in Cuba, there's slavery in Brazil. There's all these new sugar colonies that still have the advantage of, of unpaid labor. Mm-hmm. And the British are saying to its planters, no, no, you have to pay your labor. So they're, uh, they're looking for a, a free system of labor that will make their sugar plantations profitable, um, but this new system of labor supply looks pretty, um, uh, pretty abusive from mm-hmm. the get-go. So the British respond by saying, uh, okay, well, uh, you know, st- uh, we're going to stop this migration. We're going to impose regulations. And so they impose early regulations on, uh, the, uh, for example, that there should be, um, the, 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 the workers should be inspected. So before they get on a ship, they should be asked, Whether in fact they want to go, do they know where they're going? Um, Their contract should be read to them. Mm -hmm. They should be physically inspected to make sure they're healthy. That food should be, you know, adequate. Food should be provided on the ships. They're trying to make sure people don't die on the way over, right? Um, And so they impose these regulations, and it doesn't work. That there's still reports of astronomical death rates, uh, of mistreatment of people who are. Uh, kidnapped into the indenture system of people who clearly didn't know uh, where they were going, or knew that they were going overseas, but wanted to go in one place and ended up somewhere else right. because of, you know, the malfeasance of the people doing the, uh, the, the, the recruiting. And so in uh, 1838, on the same day that slavery ends throughout the British Empire, the British officials call a halt to the uh, migration of indentured workers, primarily out of India at that point. And it stops. It stops for a period of years, but the planters are clamoring for access to labor. And so uh, in part because the free Black slaves are using the relative labor scarcity created by the end of the slave trade to kind of try to organize and bargain up their wages. Mm-hmm. And so they're dealing with strikes, and to break those strikes, they very much want an alternative source of labor. And so the planters clamor for more, uh, for, for a resumption of the system, and they get it in 1842, but with even more. Rules attached. So not only do you have the doctors, and this time the doctors actually have to be in the government employ, and they have to they have to sail on the ships with the with the uh, coolie labor, and they prescribe in greater detail the amount of food that has to be provided. They shorten the term of the contracts. They say you don't you can't sign your contracts till you're overseas, with the idea that you could then choose your employer on the block. So mm-hmm, never, mm-hmm. you know, you choose your employer when you arrive, although that you know you're not going to know. Who's who? So I don't see how that was going to be affected, but they're trying to actually create a free labor system, even if workers are then bound to an employer for a period of years. And so they impose loads of regulation, but the key thing that really struck me as fascinating is the British really take over the migration system. They say nobody can recruit indentured labor unless they're in the employ of the British government. Mm, So they mm -hmm. nationalize or imperialize the migration system and they start running the system themselves. And so it's really the biggest regulatory system of of, um, international labor migration that we've really ever seen in the world. And I don't think we've seen anything like it since. So they create not only all these regulations, but they create these new positions of protectors of immigrants, and they have a protector of immigrants in each of the ports from which people are leaving India. There's a protector of immigrants in each of the receiving colonies. They have staffs. And then in addition to that, the British had sent to each of the uh, colonies when slavery ended, they sent stipendary magistrates. So they recognized, for example, that a slave in a dispute, an ex-slave in a dispute with a um, his or her master wasn't going to get a fair shake in court because judges and justices of the peace were all planters mm-hmm. in the colonies. So they sent... Um, stipendary magistrates on the British payroll often people who are anti-slavery uh, uh, who share anti-slavery sentiments to be the uh, judges essentially in these uh, in any case involving a freed slave very much like the for the role of the Freedmen's Bureau mm-hmm. during Reconstruction when it kind of functioned as a court system right in 1942 when the British let the indentured migration system resume they extended the purview of those stipendary magistrates to include the indentured uh, migrants. So they even have a kind of court system designed specially for them. So it's really quite a massive regulatory system and um, and, and that's really what struck me as significant because we have migrant you know migrant labor all over the world now. Mm-hmm. And there are um, conven- international international labor uh, organization conventions that apply to migrant labor. But the key states that import migrant labor don't sign those conventions. And there's certainly no, um, you know, uh, employees of the ILO all over the world inspecting conditions on plantations Mm -hmm. uh, and on, you know, the uh, the recruitment system and so forth. It's it's just creates aspirational rules against which you can sue. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But, um, you know, this regulatory system was really quite unique.
0: Right, so let's let's talk a little bit about who these workers were. Um, you had mentioned that most of them, by and large, were people of color. So, first of all, where yeah. were, where were they coming from? Um, well,
1: in the very early days, they they get workers from uh, the Azores, from the islands that are off the west coast of Africa, that had been uh, Portuguese islands. They got people from uh, India. So, the some of the first workers were imported by. Planters, or actually French planters, because Mauritius was a French colony before mm-hmm. it was an English colony. So the planters are French. And they started importing convicts from India, and then uh, it broadens out from there, and they begin to get people who are volunteers or ostensibly volunteers who sign these indentured bonds who are not convicts, and that gives the the um, uh, that idea gets picked up by uh, planters. Well, they're actually in England, but they own plantations in British Guyana, which is in South America.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so we start to get Indian people from India being the, the vast majority of the people circulating. But the, um, in, later in the century, we get many indentured workers coming from China. Uh, and then Africans are included as well. they are people from Madagascar. Uh, there are people from the west coast of Africa, although there's an enormous nervousness about the use of Africans as indentured workers for fear that it will appear to be a resumption of slave trade.
2: Mm-hmm, right and
1: it'll make policing the slave trade difficult because the British um, Navy is sailing the Atlantic trying to capture uh, slave ships that are that are violating the slave trade ban, any ship loaded with Africans they can presume is a slave trading ship, and they can haul it to a mixed commission court, which is sort of the first international human rights courts, and have it, you know, uh, adjudicated and uh, free. And if it's determined that those people are slaves, then they would be freed and the ship is confiscated. But if you have ships loaded with Africans who are indentured workers, how do you know Right what it is. So there's a lot of nervousness at using Africans and the vast majority of indentured workers are uh, from India, Africa.
0: Okay. And am I right to assume that most of these indentured workers are men versus women? Or was it versus- uh, most of them are men, but the British encourage
1: and actually mandate the importation of women um, in the in the sort of second wave of the program, when they regulate it, they say a certain percentage has to be women. And they encourage the migration of entire families by saying that the migration of women and children has to be free, that the planters okay. can't charge the migrants. So they're trying to create settlements as opposed to just circulatory migration mm-hmm. systems where people work for a few years and then go back. Right. They're really trying to settle these colonies and they're trying to make sure that this is done in a moral way and thus the, the encouragement of family migration.
0: Right. And, and what sorts of work were they doing in the colonies? You had mentioned the sugar plantations. Yeah. Um, what, what were their working and living conditions like? Um, you know, what, 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 did they, what did they see when they got there?
1: Well, they're, they're doing work that had been done by slaves before them. So dirty, difficult, dangerous work. Uh, much of them work in sugar plantations. Some of them are clearing land for sugar plantations, which is very, very difficult work digging ditches, cutting down trees, trying to get out the roots of trees, that sort of thing. They are uh, working in mining, and, and famously the Chinese are put to work in guano mining, which mm-hmm. is actually not below ground, but in these uh, huge piles of um, dried bird uh, bird guano. And and that is very very nasty work indeed, and people would be overcome by the fumes generated by the um, the manure. So, it's it's very dangerous work. It's dirty work. Uh, it's difficult work, and it's poorly paid. Although they are getting paid, which mm-hmm. is different from the seventeenth um, and eighteenth century. The um, uh, workers imported were often housed at least initially in slave quarters and they often are sharing communities with uh, freed slaves and that but eventually planters as the numbers rise would build um, essentially barracks for for people these were sort of long skinny buildings that were just filled with people, and they often were built in places that were, you know, it was cheap land, so you build where you don't want to build on your best land for planting, so you find another spot. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of problems with um, uh, sickness generated by exposure to um, sewage and, you know, bad water and just lack of ventilation in these buildings. Mm-hmm. So that becomes one of the concerns of the British that the death rates continue and they require hospitals and medical care, and um, none of it goes very very well. So we have very high death rates, even in the early 20th century when this whole program ends, Um, there's still reports of uh, 25% death rates of Mm. cruise in Mauritius, for example.
0: Right. And so what would a typical indentured contract look like? Um, How long was it for? What kind of, you know, what kind of things were, were, you know put in writing in those and then where was the wiggle room to you know to kind of get around that
1: yeah so the these the the dates the the length of the of the contracts varied over the course of the 20th century so the the planters who originally sorry the 19th century the planters who originally set these things up wanted seven year indentures but they were not allowed to do that by the british administration so most contracts uh, were then limited to two years, mm-hmm. but planters didn't find it uh, economically feasible to pay somebody's way halfway around the world. A ship voyage that might take four years, to, uh, four sorry, four months to a year uh, of ocean travel, and then have them only work two years. So mm-hmm. they were always pushing for longer contracts. And over the course of the 19th century, the contracts got Longer and longer, so you, you get five-year contracts, and in some cases, eight-year mm-hmm. contracts. Um, the contracts would uh, require, usually, uh, they were they limited hours of work, usually to seven hours per day, for example, in British Guyana. But in fact, the workers were not working by the hour; they were working by the task, just as slaves had. In the in the the later years of slavery, so you had a task to complete, and and at the beginning, say you'd be working, you'd be completing that task, you know, cutting x many rows of sugarcane or digging this ditch, uh, and you'd get say a shilling per day for what was supposed to be seven hours of work, but the. Indentured workers would complain that they were really doing 12 hours of work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That um, we have a report from an indentured man named Betchew in British Guyana who said that over a couple of years, the the, the size of the task kept growing, so they had to do two days' work for this of uh, 12-hour days for the same one shilling. Mm-hmm. So what the contract said and what the work was was very different, and we see the same problems with modern guest workers. Uh, but they were basically confined to one employer. They were usually uh, limited to, um, they could move around, but only within, say, a mile of the plantation. And um, so these were were contracts uh, quite similar to the contracts we would see, say, under the Black Codes in during Reconstruction and the mm-hmm. early days of Reconstruction when your movements were limited, you were tied to a t- particular person, but you were free to the extent that between contracts, you were free and able to choose another employer.
0: Right. So did this system of indenture actually work to fulfill the labor needs in the colonies um, as a replacement for slavery?
1: Yes, it does Now it doesn't it doesn't really replace slaves and though you'd get that impression from much of the literature mm-hmm. uh, so the growers say they have to have indentured workers because this, the freed slaves won't work for them anymore. In fact, there are lots of um, people of African descent continuing to work in agriculture and all these in all these colonies they were uh, usually called Creoles at the time, so we see lots of Creole labor. What the indentured workers are really doing is um, competing with those workers. Mm-hmm. So the planters are bringing in uh, another group of workers so that they can negotiate in a more from a more favorable position with uh, with the Creole labor. So it succeeds in helping them to lower wages, and we see uh, when sugar prices drop dramatically in the 19th century, you'll we'll see planters lower um, the wages for, say, sugar cane cutters, and then we also see strike waves. And we see how they're using the planters. So, for example, in British Guyana, um, there was, uh, in, the, in the late 30s, right after slavery ended, we see a strike wave of uh, free black labor, and the planters end up settling with them, raising wages, and withdrawing some of the more um, pernicious laws that they had tried to impose uh, on those workers that would have criminalized uh, violations of civil labor contracts. So if you broke a tool or you didn't show up, you could be put in jail. Mm-hmm. In 1942, they get access to the indentured workers. There's another strike wave, but this time the planters prevail because they have an alternate source of labor and they can hold their Stand their ground Mm -hmm. with the with the Creole workers who are trying to fight for uh, higher wages. So the Creole workers lose the second general strike because of the arrival of indentured workers from India. So it's not a replacement for those freed slaves, but it's an attempt to uh, give those people a run for their money and force them to uh, accept lower wages and, you know, the sort of conditions that they experienced under slavery.
0: Right. And when the contracts ended, did most of these... Um coolie laborers stick around and sort of enter into that, you know, that free labor force to compete with other indentured servants or what ends up happening there?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting issue because they are entitled to go back. And in the early years of the contracts, uh, after five years, they were entitled to free passage back. By the end of the century, it's more like after 10 years, you're, you're, you're entitled to free labor back. And only if you re-upped every year as mm-hmm. an indentured worker then you would be entitled to free passage back and some people do take advantage of that and go back home and go back to their families um, some return again you know go back home and get family members and bring them back but a great many people do settle in the places where they worked uh, so this is why we have so many people of indian descent in mauritius and mm-hmm. in Guyana in fiji these were all places that uh uh, and took in many indentured workers, and those people then then stayed. So, um, the the thing though is that once those people were done with their indenture, they were not necessarily willing to continue to work on plantations. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people became peddlers, and then eventually shopkeepers. Some banded together and bought sugar plantations that had been abandoned or sold on a sort of fire sale prices by. English planters who were getting out of the business, and so they become farmers themselves, and this sort of infuriates planters who, who want access to their labor and don't get it. And so what we see in waves uh, around the British Empire are, uh, are are new laws that impose rules on on people and and that try to force ex Indentured workers to either go back to work on the on the plantations or leave the colony. So we see, for example, discriminatory taxes where they would have to pay a tax if they didn't either re-up as indentured workers or go back uh, to where they uh, to go back home from where they came. And so, for example, um, uh, Mahatma Gandhi gets his start as an attorney fighting. Those sorts of discriminatory measures in mm-hmm. in South Africa, um, but we also see all kinds of other penal codes imposed to try to um, keep the indentured workers at work on the plantations, um, keep them from leaving the plantations. So we see the imposition of pass laws, for example, and then we see uh, laws that required X. Immigrants to have a pass that showed that they had finished their indentures. They were often sort of swept up in what were known as coolie hunts, where planters would go looking for runaways, and these ex-indentured people would get rounded up as well. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're all they're there, you know they settle, but they're often subject to this kind of harsh. Um, law that's designed to keep all workers of color at work on plantations.
0: Right. So let's fast forward a bit from the late 19th century to the late 20th century and the early 21st. Um, And if you could start us out by discussing the H2B guest worker program in the United States, which, you know, you're seeing parallels to here. Um, What is it? What is it designed to do, basically?
1: Yeah, well, let me just back up a little bit and say that um, guest the early so the H-2B program is a guest worker program um, and it brings temporary workers to the United States for non-agricultural work. So we have agricultural guest workers and we have non-agricultural guest mm-hmm. workers. And most people associate guest worker programs with the sort of aftermath of the Second World War, but they really go back to the end of the 19th century, and in fact, they overlapped with indentured servitude and in some ways the early indenture programs were created to solve some of the problems that indentured servitude had um, spawned. So for example in South Africa, because indentured workers could stay at the end of their indenture and they could become farmers in their own right and they could become shopkeepers, they competed with white settlers coming from england and other places who didn't want to rub elbows with ex coolies and certainly didn't want to compete with them mm-hmm. and so thus those discriminatory taxes and lots of hullabaloo about you know migrant workers um, uh lurking around the colony and so guest worker programs begin in places where there are sort of two streams of migration that where there's these workers of color Coming under contract, and where there's also white settlers, um, and in in you know who, who bump up against each other. And so in South Africa, we see, for example, uh, when the when gold and diamonds were discovered in um, Kimberley in the in Kimberley mines, instead of bringing in indentured workers because that's already caused lots of fuss in other parts of the colonies, they brought in people from um, other African states, especially from, um, uh, Mozambique, and they brought them in under contracts that didn't let them settle mm-hmm. at the end of a year. So they were kind of locked in for the term of their, uh, contract and then cycled back out again. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we mean when we talk about a guest worker program, that you're there with authorization. The state has signed off on your migration, but you can't stay. hmm uh, so, it's it's a sort of indentured servitude with a twist. When indentured workers ran afoul of their employers, they would be flogged or they would go to jail. When guest workers run afoul of their employers, they can be deported, right? Or threatened right. with deportation. So, that's the key difference. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Um, uh, launches into guest work programs in a big way during World War II. And brings in people on temporary contracts from Mexico and from the Caribbean, and, and some also from Canada, uh, to do mostly agricultural work, but also mining and, and to work on railroads. And after the war, only to work in agriculture. And that remains true until 1986, when the guest worker programs uh, that's in agriculture are um, enlarged and largely deregulated. And then we also get the uh, invention of non agricultural gas worker programs at the same time what you what you just call h2b mm-hmm. and so it's um, that's an, a new arrival in in um, uh, 1986 and where we have uh, now uh, hundreds of thousands of gas workers in the United States working in agriculture and working in non agricultural employment from you know everything from harvesting Uh, tobacco, harvesting Christmas trees, picking crab meat out of shells, to nursing and even uh, teaching high school.
0: Right. So uh, what kinds of um, abuses are common in this system i mean it seems you know you had just mentioned that if someone oh. messes up at work that they can be deported and i'm sure there's a lot of you know ba- you know the boundary for what constitutes a, a deportable offense is very wide yeah. so yeah what you know yeah. what what's common in terms of that you know in terms of how the system can be can be manipulated
1: Yeah. Well, there's nothing essentially wrong with saying you should be able to get a temporary visa to work in another country. And many of us have done this Mm -hmm. over the years. The particular problem with the gas worker program as it works in the U.S. and in many other places today is that workers are bound to a particular employer. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the U.S., the employers can handpick who they import and they can also uh, repatriate a person if they're you know considered a troublemaker for one reason or another right and that's an enormous amount of power to put in the hands of an employer so and and the, the difficulty then is no matter how good the contracts look on paper if you can be threatened with deportation for trying to enforce the terms of your contract then the contract becomes meaningless. So mm-hmm. some employers of gas workers treat them treat people properly and um, you know abide by the terms of the contract and workers can come here uh, the majority of agricultural guest workers today are are Mexicans, uh, and many people go back and forth and and are are earning wages that they couldn't possibly make at home, which is why they do it. But if you are not being treated properly by your employer, and we don't, there's no way to calculate you know, what percentage of people are abused because most people won't report it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you you find that your employer is not living up to, your, to the terms of the contract, uh, it's very risky to come forward and say something about it because mm-hmm. the federal government has not um, uh, done much at all in the way of enforcement. And in fact, when they found employers to be in violation of their contracts, they haven't. It hasn't prevented them from allowing the same employers to bring uh, new workers in the next year. In fact, the first time I've seen employers being denied new um, groups of H2 uh, of workers because of violations of workers' contracts was under the Obama administration, and gas worker programs go back to 1942, right, so right. so that's really the problem. So the kinds of abuses we see are uh, underpayment of wages, so the big um, sugarcane cases in uh, uh, Florida were very similar to what I described earlier in the indentured system where the workers are promised in their contracts, a certain hourly wage, but the task they're given, uh, forces them to do far more work uh, for that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, for that wage. So they're not getting paid by the hour what they were supposed to have gotten paid. And they're always told, well, don't worry about it. You're not being paid by the hour you're being paid by the task. But if you did the math, uh, and you're having to cut, two rows of sugar cane uh, longer than seven football fields uh for you know uh 20 hours uh, 20 dollars a day you're not going to be making anywhere near the minimum wage mm-hmm. let alone the hourly wage that you're promising your contract so uh so wage uh, shaving is is a major problem but we've also had problems uh, seen problems with people being housed in uh, storage sheds, uh, being locked in at night, um, having employers brandish weapons uh, in front of them. We've seen guest workers beaten by their employers for uh, complaining about wages or complaining about insufficient rations or complaining about injuries. Uh, in the case of the Signal International workers, these were welders from India working for um, a shipyard company in a, ship, a repair company in the New Orleans area. The workers were getting prevailing wages, but they had been promised green cards, and they had been they had paid up to twenty thousand dollars per man for those green cards and when they got to the united states they discovered that not only were they not going to get green cards that they only had one year visas
2: Mm. but
1: that they were being housed in trailers 24 men to a trailer so you were and they were being charged a thousand dollars plus per man For a bunk bed. So at that price, they knew immediately that not only were they not going to get green cards that would have allowed them to reunite and stay permanently with their families in the United States, and they weren't going to have enough money to send back to their families, but they also weren't going to have enough money to just pay the interest on what they had borrowed Mm -hmm. to get the green cards they thought they were going to get weren't. So there's all kind. There's a huge range of abuses, from minor things to uh, very, very major um, uh, issues that rise to the level of, of human trafficking and even, uh, you know, even involuntary servitude.
0: Right. So to to round out our discussion, um, sort of a two-part question, where do you see the key connections between these two stories, number one? And number two, similarly, what do you see as the important takeaways from these connections for informing today's debates about guest worker programs and immigration policy more broadly?
1: Yeah. So indentured work and guest worker programs are really strikingly similar. In fact, a few years ago, I was working as an expert witness on a guest worker case involving uh, sheep herders who had come from Peru to work in Colorado. And as I was reading their depositions, I made a list of their major complaints. And then I went back to reading about Vettu, the the 19th century indentured worker in British Guyana, who I mentioned earlier, and she wrote, was, was highly literate, and wrote scathing editorials to the local paper. And in one of those, he listed the main complaints of the coolies, and darned if it wasn't the same exact list. It was mm-hmm. so similar, in fact, that I mailed it. I emailed the list to the attorney that I was working for, who was the attorney for the plaintiffs in the in the human trafficking case. And she said, what is this? It's, you know, it's so familiar. And I said, mm-hmm. it's from 1896 uh, from British Guyana. And she wrote back, you know, oh my God. So the, so the circumstances uh, are very similar. It's even terms of the contracts that are uh, nearly identical. What's fundamentally different though, is the fact that the indentured workers could stay at the end of their indenture Um, and while the gas workers had to be cycled in and out. And so the gas, the the indentured workers, um, were often treated very, very poorly as indentured workers, despite all the regulatory efforts of the British. Um, I think those regulatory efforts were largely undercut by the kind of penal codes that the planters were imposing in each of the colonies.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, so the contracts looked great and there were all these people there to try to, um, enforce them. But again, if you went to prison because you protested or you, you know, you tried to speak on behalf of your fellow workers, or you tried to agitate for higher wages, you'd end up in, in prison. Um, so the, the, the regulatory system, I don't think is really the key to the difference, although I'm fascinated by it. The key difference, I think, is that Indentured workers settled, often settled, at the end of their indenture. So you might not survive your indenture, and you were likely treated very poorly as an indentured worker. But if you live through it, you could do pretty well for yourself. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, Indian uh, uh, ex-indentured workers made up um, uh, a tiny percentage of professionals in the uh, middle of the 19th century in Mauritius, but by the end of the century, they, they make up um, nearly 30% of professionals. So they do quite well for themselves and because they can stay and settle, they can develop a political voice. Even if they're not given equal voting rights in a, in a place like South Africa, they're nonetheless, they become uh, uh, a lobby, right? They become uh, a settled population that can advocate for itself guest workers are constantly cycled in and out so they if they stay in the country to which they migrated they stay without authorization and so they develop no political power and no political voice and have had a much harder time advocating for themselves in um in a, in the public realm let alone in courts of law
0: okay well cindy johamovich thank you for joining us on this episode of working history You're so welcome, Beth. Thanks for calling. Thanks again to Cindy Hahamovich, the and Izzy Spalding Professor of Southern History at the University of Georgia. She is the author of the award-winning book, No Man's Land, Jamaican Guest Workers in America and the Global History of Deportable Labor, published by Princeton University Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.